This is the European edition of Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. We bring you the European unicorns, startups, founders, regulators and leaders innovating the rapidly evolving fintech scene today. A truly localized podcast with both English and local language content with some of the world's most well-known hosts and influencers in the fintech sector globally. Join us every week as we explore what makes the European Union a phenomenal proving ground for many of the fastest growing fintech plays in the world today. Okay, let's roll. Welcome to Breaking Banks Europe, episode 82, Journeys from the Fintech World, and today we're focusing on Canada. My name is Megan Johnson, your Breaking Banks Europe co-host, and I'm joined by Ranjit Sarai, VP Digital Banking at Credit Sesame, and Jan Christopher Arp, Founding Managing Partner at Holt Exchange. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, Ranjit, let's start with you. You have quite an interesting uh, background. So, yeah, could you explain to us a bit, um, you know, your experience within the fintech or digital banking world and what you're doing now at Credit Sesame? Yeah, sure. Love to. Um, and, and let me know if, it, if I ramble on too long, but... Uh, I spent a number of years, probably 10 plus years in, in traditional kind of banking, uh, retail banking. Uh, I worked at CIBC, uh, one of the largest banks here in Canada. And then uh, recently after that at um, President's Choice Financial, which is kind of a retail bank similar to, uh, I guess, Tesco. Maybe the European audience might be familiar with Tesco and Tesco Bank, similar kind of set up with uh, Loblaws and President's Choice Financial. And in both roles, my um, in both, uh, you know, jobs, my role is really on digital, um, developing digital platforms, mobile apps, uh, really from a product, product management and strategy perspective, and then running large scale digital transformation um, initiatives as well. And then about three, um, three plus years ago, and again, with COVID, it's hard to uh, remember if it was three or four years, but I think it was around three plus years. We, uh, two friends and I uh, started a company called Stack, which is a challenger bank in Canada. Um, and so we started and launched Stack. I came from retail banking. My other co-founder, Nick, was from MasterCard. Another uh, co-founder, Miro, came from uh, banking and payments as well. So we all had a background um, in our day jobs and we decided it was time to launch something of our own. And we scaled that up, um, you know, went through, uh, going from zero to 50,000 plus customers, um, in a short amount of time and scaling that business up. And essentially we started to move from being a consumer facing challenger bank to also offering white label services. And so we started powering other businesses here in Canada. Uh, we started working with credit unions and, uh, we work with a company called Solero to launch uh, a, you know, a, a payment product for their credit union members. And then during that, we expanded to the U.S. through a partnership with Credit Sesame. So Credit Sesame is a fast-scaling fintech, Silicon Valley-based um, venture capital-backed company um, in the credit space, and they want to add banking. So we partnered with them. Uh, you know, Long story short, that partnership grew into an acquisition. We saw eye to eye on many of the things that they were working on and the vision and strategy laid up by their, their CEO, Adrian. And, and we felt that it was time to, uh, you know, join forces closer. And so we got acquired about a year ago and at the same time launched Sesame Cash, which is a digital bank in, in the U.S. And so, you know, the team in Toronto still operates fully in Canada. We operate Stack in Canada, our white label services in Canada, as well as uh, the growing Sesame Cash business in the U.S., all under kind of the Credit Sesame Canada business uh, unit at this point. So, yeah, fun times and, uh, you know, things move really quick in the fintech space. So, you know, that's kind of a reflection of that, definitely. Definitely. I mean, wow, quite quite the journey. Um, I mean, I have a, quite a few follow-up questions. About, um, yeah, I guess kind of the profile and also, you know, this whole, like how closely the U.S. and, and Canada work together. But before I jump into all my questions, um, yeah, I'd like to welcome um, Jan, founding managing partner in Hold Exchange. Jan, can you tell us a bit more about your experience and what Hold Exchange does? Sure, happy to. So uh, always in finance for the longest time. Eventually, I 
really wanted to help out the entrepreneurial side of things. So leveraging my finance background, I helped a bunch of early stage companies, about 15 or so, raised about 20 million bucks and helped companies go from sort of nothing to Series A. Uh, in that process, learned a lot about, you know, whether it be government grants or angel investing, institutional financing, uh, debt financing, all those things. Uh, realized the the challenges of helping support those companies, but also started uncovering what what I was doing in some ways to automate that process was kind of called fintech. So several five years back, there really wasn't a strong sort of fintech ecosystem. I'd say in, in Canada, I think we've kind of only seen it really emerge in the last five years. More more. Um, for the masses, shall we say. Um, yes, there has been fintechs prior to that, but just uh, the overall number of companies and being more well-known. We started um, an organization, a nonprofit at that point called Fintech Cadence to really help kind of the grassroots movement, the thought leadership, and yeah, help to assemble a community of people for which fintech projects could start. So kind of challenge-driven innovation, leveraging corporates and uh, academia and even um, entrepreneurs who want to be entrepreneurs to get started in the field. Uh, through that, did that for several years and passed it on, keeps going well, and helping to better also unite the Canadian ecosystem because I think there still remains some challenges across provinces for us to better unite, especially in a world like fintech where jurisdictions and well, regulations play a key piece to hurdles that must be overcome for those uh, fintechs that are looking to come into it. Uh, through time, though, I bumped into a fifth-generation family uh, several of those across Canada. Uh, this was based on the legacy of Herbert Holtz. Uh, so he was, I guess, living the Canadian dream. Uh, so was an uh, Irish immigrant in the late 1800s and did quite well for himself, about 300 businesses under his name by the end and had things like that was the longest serving chairman of the Royal Bank of Canada for over 30 plus years, uh, as well as started something called Light Heat and Power Company that's now known as Hydro-Quebec. So uh, anyways, five generations later, that family is still investing directly, investing into funds, invested with the Adidas family um, out in Europe uh, for the Adidas, uh, the lead sports accelerator, and then said, hey, we want to do what we know, which is finance, and we want to start something there. And so we teamed up together. And so for the last several years, we've been focusing on the top companies. We've done about 27 investments. So one of Canada's probably most active early stage investors, really looking to help companies cross that very difficult chasm, especially what's very hard in, in the fintech space, really looking for companies that's a fit with now our 500 advisors. So those advisors represent financial institutions, investors, experts, really helping them get plugged in and make some deals and have a lot of fun along the way. So that's a bit of a rundown of what uh, what the track record to date and what Holt Exchange is up to. Cool. Thanks for that. And so, I mean, you mentioned that it's only really been the previous five years in which there's been an emerging emerging fintech scene. Um, what were some of the challenges and in, in, in the catalysts for kind of, yeah, creating this fintech uh, ecosystem in Canada? Uh, it's, it's a great question. I think there, if we look at uh, what happened in the U.S., more of this really started to come post-financial crisis. So 2008, you saw a huge wave. Uh, of new companies that emerged. I feel like that didn't quite hit in, in, into the Canadian front. Uh, just sheer number of new companies created, uh, those that are tracking those, those indicators, at least that we see, there, there, was a, there was a large increase. Probably the biggest peak was probably around 2017. So there was like a, a pyramid of, of companies that increased up into that point. Uh, it's actually has been dropping since. Uh, so every year it's actually been reduced. Now, it could be that more and more companies are operating in stealth mode. Um, but it could also be just a, a drop in the number of companies and the creation thereof. Uh, what we do potentially expect, obviously, with this, this new situation, economic situation, that new companies should be created. And we're starting to see more of that as well. Uh, I think um, those are some of the key aspects. But then there's been a, an emergence of new investors, uh, funds, uh, tailored to specifically the fintech ecosystem. So recognizing that there is an opportunity to invest in the, the space. I mean, obviously, Holt Exchange is, is one of them, which we've done several years back, but a whole slew of them. There was like uh, First Capital Partners uh, Diagram and the Portage Group, backed by the Demaray Group. There was uh, Framework Ventures, a new fund called Luge. We saw the spin up of new funds specifically under corporate venture arms, whether that be like uh, from, from National Bank side of things, but we've also seen 
seen it across uh, across the country from other big corporates as well. And part of that was attributable, I think, to the, the VCAP program. So there was a uh, government sort of said, hey, you have to invest into this fund uh, to support startups. Uh, and in doing um, so, they started backing some fund managers. So that started providing more capital into the space. There's still a long way to go. I still think there's much more capital required, but I think we've come a long way in uh, the last five years. Okay, cool. And um, Ranjit, I mean, when did you get started with Stack? And I guess what were some of the challenges as one of these kind of earlier fintechs? And yeah, I guess what's the What's what are the regulatory hoops um, it takes to create a, a challenger bank in Canada? Because you know the the UK FCA and, and CMA has made it super easy um, to create a challenger bank. So, what was your experience like? Yeah, I would say, and I agree with Jan. I think it, this all kind of started five, six years ago, um, and I think you know it was a combination, the perfect storm of the right. Uh, you know, Toronto's a hub for fintech, just because the banking sector um a lot of all the big five banks are kind of headquartered in toronto montreal is a huge um hub as well for emerging financial services but also data and ai so you have these two powerhouses backed by you know just the ecosystem of universities and and talent that's here and then as the money started the capital started coming in you saw more and more companies um that said yeah it's definitely a challenge right five years ago it's not the same as today even three years ago is not the same as today i think uh one of the one of the things that COVID brought is that uh this acceptance of digital all things digital right and leapfrog you know every vertical from healthcare to education financial services jump 10 years in the future over the course of six months or 12 months so you know i think the stage is different now but getting back to your question around regulatory you know, we had the advantage, like I said, I'd spent 10 years in banking. Um, you know, my my other co-founder was a VP at MasterCard, knew the payments rails, another uh, co-founder, you know, similar background. So we we came in saying we could launch this, you know, in three to six months. It took us a year and a half, despite knowing everything, like who to contact, you know, working with partners. So it's always harder than you expect. I think a big part of it is uh, regulatory, but one of the, one of the, the, the benefits, you know, how we built Stack and how a lot of challenger banks still operate um, is leveraging payment rails to build banking services, right? So you leverage Visa MasterCard rails to build a banking service. Uh, very different than a traditional core banking platform that, that's more kind of a, a different type of beast. Um, so that helps in certain instances because the, the payment rails are, are a little more advanced than the banking infrastructure typically. Um, but that said, you know, still a long ways to go, I think, yeah, and we'll be able to talk a bit more about open banking and the initiatives, but we are, you know, looking to the UK and seeing kind of the stuff that's happened there, a bit jealous, you know, I think um, we've been pushing the government here, there's been a few iterations, uh, the, the finance minister and others have signaled that they want to have open banking, you know, the funny thing is we did a, a large exercise in open banking and the big, the big outcome was that they had to change the name because so customers actually don't want to you know, when you ask someone if you want open banking, they get fear, right? Because banking is something that's very personal and it's about your money. So I think one of the big outcomes of the open banking phase one initiative was to just rebrand it as consumer-directed financial services, something less uh, scary for the average consumer, which is, which is you know, it's a good finding. But, you know, we wish on the, techni- on the technology side and the fintech side, things would move quicker. Um, there's solutions out there like Flinks and based in Montreal, obviously Plaid you know, that could enable it. But these are still ways that uh, uh, are kind of uh, uh, um, kind of going around uh, open banking, right? So they, they achieve the same goal, but there's obviously risk and stuff like that. So a true open banking platform, like, you know, how it is in the UK, access to the Bank of Canada, uh, things like that, having access to the rails would be a huge benefit for companies like us and other, other uh, uh, fintechs as well, right? Okay. Yeah. And Jan, I guess, so what are the types of, I mean, the, the startups and fintechs you're working with, is there one kind of sector that they tend to fall into? Is it more PFM? Is it more on, on business banking? Um, yeah. Where are the main pockets of innovation? And I guess, how does this, uh, I'm not going to say open banking, but consumer directed financial services, how are fintechs reacting to, to this? 
Uh, yeah, it's uh, two, two big questions. So I'll start with, I guess we have kind of big buckets that how we see the world. So we're trying to look at what finance is about. And I think there's kind of four key areas. Uh, so there's I am, right? And that's kind of like the regulation and, and digital identity. And we've invested a lot in those spaces. So to give you some examples like owl.co based out of Vancouver, you know, just with your name, I can get up to 70 data points. I can better profile you and I can use this for different ways, right? So like who you are, right? So like kind of under the IM. Uh, they've been, found a really good, uh, strong niche product actually in the insurance for the fraud pre- prevention on, on the claim side. Another example is um, we worked to found a company Mexico-based uh, Matt.ai, which is a digital identity company. Uh, so better protection, what way to, way to house your data, a sort of a wallet for it, if you will, and giving the rights of that data to the consumer itself. Uh, so a little bit uh, forward thinking. In fact, we actually were looking how we establish it into to the North American and, and Canadian market. And I just think we're not always properly is perfectly set up for that. So they're actually doing very, very well in the Latin American market and setting and, you know, getting ready for the tailwinds of, of things like open banking or, or the principles of GDP. PR and, and how that would affect, um, you know, the way that data is held and, and moved. Other buckets I have, for instance, uh, we look at uh, iSave. So whether that be that is in capital markets, whether that's in, in banking services or our PFM. So uh, if we look around, like I'll give you an example of, of capital markets. We played in a company called Fundseeder. It's backed by uh, Jack Schwager, is one of the founders, and some he wrote a book on it called Market Wizards. But uh, essentially, it has about seventeen thousand traders on their platform, and they're tracking all those traders and they're they're ranking them. And so putting them in order from from one to seventeen thousand, but obviously it depends on your strategy and what your your risk uh, tolerance is and what industries you want exposure to. But what they did find is when you have this information, of course the traders love it because they can better see how to improve and they're competitive, so they want to know how to do better. But uh, if you have this information, you can identify the top traders and provide them uh, funds, but as well as create a, a portfolio that sort of matches the the top strategies for let's say the top one uh, percent or top five percent. Uh, flipping over, we were very heavy in the I borrow category. So lending, uh, we had good partners like uh, Fairstone Financial who've been with us pretty much right from the start. And so we were interested in many different areas, but um, to give some examples, uh, well, one example is in the real estate side, shall we say, and, and the mortgage side, we actually were uh, interested very much on the Sharia compliant financing. And so there wasn't anything uh, properly uh, set up in the North American market to cater to this demographic. And so we backed a company that really understood how to meld the two, you know, Western and um, uh, Islamic uh, uh, principles to be able to provide a debt solution, for lack of a better term, so halal financing, as they call it, so that they could uh, better serve this market and have been doing fantastic. And it doesn't end there, actually. You can provide sure compliant all kinds of banking products at that point, uh, but they're starting with the mortgage market and doing fantastic. Lastly, is uh, I'm protected on the insurance and cybersecurity. So I'll, I'll skim over that because I think I've gone a little bit long at this point. Uh, but I think that gives you a flavor of all the things that we've con- we've done. Twenty seven, right? So that was just an example of some of them. Super cool. And Ranja, I mean, what does the kind of neo bank challenger bank landscape look like in in Canada? Were you one of the first, um, one of a, a few, and how is that whole space playing out? And yeah, who's like the Monzo of Canada? Uh, I would say we're one of the few, right? So the the other ones are uh, there's Coho in Toronto. There's there's Mogo based in Vancouver, and some of these have started to now you know scale up, right? So Coho. Jan mentioned um, Power Financial is a large financial institution, family fund kind of company with with Portage, their VC arm, and they funded companies like Well Simple, which which raised a massive round now, um, you know, five billion dollar plus valuation, and Coho's also scaling. Um, you know, we were uh, fortunate enough to be part of an accelerator as well, similar to, to Jan's, based in Silicon Valley, so plug and play. And that's what got us the connection. So the, the power of an accelerator is massive. You know, Jan mentioned he has 27 um, uh, investments in this round. When you add them all up, that's a huge ecosystem, right? So the same thing happened to us with plug and play and, and getting connected to Credit Sesame. You know, just touching on kind of what you were asking before on some of the big trends we see, you know, it wasn't until we kind of joined forces with Credit Sesame that we realized, that I realized, you know, the credit score 
is so powerful in a consumer's financial world, right? It's not one number. Literally, it's one number that could that could change your life. So, you know, if as that number goes up, life gets easier, meaning your loans are cheaper, access to more products. And the reverse is true, unfortunately. As that number goes down, you know, you're now paying 20, 30% uh, interest rates, right? You're not be able to access stuff. And we've, you know, it's been an eye-opener for me. I, again, now we have a North American view. So Canada and the US, but to be honest, Canadian customers, Canadian um, uh, residents are just in this almost the same predicament as the U.S. Right, more than half of Canada lives paycheck to paycheck. So we we might be privileged here, uh, you know, taking for granted our credit score and our finances, but the average Canadian lives paycheck to paycheck. So the difference could be, you know, being able to rent an apartment, being able to get a repair done on an appliance, you know. So I think uh, the the credit capacity and the credit score, that type of stuff. You know, you mentioned PFM. That's that's your one number that's gonna, you know, help or 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 cause you pain down the road. So we see stuff like that um, becoming more and more interesting in this space, and we're, we're we're definitely working towards that. Yeah, I mean, I think also something I'm seeing quite a bit in in Europe is uh, the power of open banking in the SME and business space in terms of you know using account data and other aggregated. Um, data sets from businesses to help create, you know, a, a better credit score, um, you know, new products and services around trade and, and finance management and everything. So I think, yeah, I mean, the, the, the credit score and this whole concept of, you know, credit is, is absolutely pivotal for consumers and, and, and businesses. Um, before we go to the break, I just wanted to um, finish up with one question. Um, how how do the banks, how do the traditional banks, the big five, how are they reacting to, you know, the new challenger banks, the fintechs? Um, are they wary of them? Are they quick to partner with them? Are we seeing, you know, a lot of partnerships between bank and fintechs? Are they indifferent? Um, Jan, maybe if we can start off with your perspective on that. Sure. I'm happy to. Um, I think, especially five years ago, it was a different world. I remember speaking to uh, some financial institutions and getting a lot of aggressive pushback that I'm helping foster a, a com, you know, competitors to them. Uh, and it was it was a little challenging. It wasn't everyone, though, so keep that in mind. But I think we've come a long way, and it, there's still a bit of that, but I think uh, there's more of a willingness to adopt. That said, I mean, uh, Canada has definitely some large proportion of, of, of how arguably oligopoly style banking system so less competitive which means less feet to the fire to you know create a sense of urgency to innovate and, and therefore adopt now I, I think it has substantially improved and I think increasingly the the memo was getting out in terms of adoption of banking products and you're seeing different ways that they're doing so some ways are working better versus others whether it be innovation departments or i usually find the corporate venture capital arms tend to work better uh just because i'm big on incentive mechanisms and uh those who work in those spaces and and, and then how if they were to invest and have to do so in a strategic fashion tends to yield um, better success, it seems, especially strategic returns. And we're seeing that beyond the big five as well. I still think there's a lot more that can be done. And I, you know, I think areas that you just look to on the European front usually is a good example of uh, big on the idea of open innovation. And I think a lot of the models have been done and tested on, on the European front. And I think um, they've even learned from it and really understood how to better optimize all these different models and are seeing more more success in terms of the way so creating an even more competitive environment for fintechs uh, to 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 collaborate um, with the big banking sector. Cool, definitely. And yeah, Ranjit, I mean, you went from traditional banking to yeah. creating a fintech. What was that experience like? Did you burn bridges with old colleagues or was everyone? Oh, there, uh, sometimes envious, but I think I, I agree with Jan. Like, I think the pressure is not here yet for Canadian banks. They're very, very well insulated to a large extent. I mean, they, they've all done labs and, you know, digital labs. And I think they, where they are succeeding is in kind of some of these smaller partnerships that they're doing. But there's still that mentality of we can build it ourselves. If you go talk to a bank, um, they're not under the same pressure as like you know um, Jamie Dimon, right? At J.P. Morgan, he's like fintechs are here. Like we should be scared. I mean that level of 
uh, awareness has not reached because to be honest, you know, in the US is still different, right? Chime is a 15, 20 billion dollar company, millions of users. Um, and so th those are real threats. I think it's still, it's it's going to come in Canada. The awareness is not there, I would say, with all the CEOs. But there are some banks doing some interesting things, like RBC has a ventures group where they spin off small companies mm -hmm. as, as as little startups, and then they spin those off and they see what works. Okay. Um, you know, TD's doing interesting things. All the banks are kind of tiptoeing and dabbing in it. I think they went from phase one, which was like building labs. Now it's more around some some competition and we have yet to see um, you know massive acquisitions or things like that from the banks or, or even a, a call out. But I think it's coming right at, at the end of the day. It's it's just uh, a matter of uh, of time. I think. Okay, super. Okay, so that wraps up um, the first half of the episode. We'll go to a quick break um, and then we'll come back and talk a bit more about the profile of the founders, um, who you look to for inspiration and what the future of the Canadian fintech ecosystem holds. The FTS Fest is back. As 2021 develops, it will become more and more apparent how this year can truly mark the start of a second fintech revolution. Starting with a focus on sustainability, financial inclusion, and impact investing, topics that today must be considered transversely, we'll explore trends that are already shaking up the industry, such as embedded and decentralized finance plotting. Be part of the fintech revolution 2.0. Join FTS Fest Welcome back to Breaking Banks Europe, episode 82, Journeys from the Fintech World, Canada. Um, so Jan, what does the profile of the typical uh, fintech uh, founder look like? Are they, you know, traditionally former bankers now playing in the, the fintech space? Are they kind of, you know, older and more experienced? Or are we seeing, you know, 20, 22 year olds looking to get into this space? Uh, great question, and and we see a bit of everything still, right? So you, yes, uh, you do have uh, some who are very seasoned and, and domain experts to know the space very well, and are are in sinking investing their own money into something they like truly passionately believe in. So that does exist. Um, we've seen others who were experts in other areas. Uh, if we spoke about, for instance, profiling, right, and, and that's key to understanding for a bunch of different reasons, right? And you, you, we, we talked about credit scoring previously, but you can also use it for fraud prevention. Well, we've seen people who are really good experts in the ad tech domain. And so leveraging that, so industries, comparable stuff to bring it into a new, new space. We have seen uh, young uh, individuals who've also targeted themselves, uh, you know, just young emerging talent who've either faced the industry themselves head on. So we actually seen it. I'll give you a couple examples. Uh, there was one where we backed a company called Kuru, um, but these were really bright kids uh, on scholarships that actually still struggled to get credit. So they became um, certified credit consultants and then uh, productized this whole system and helped a bunch of people at scale and then launched this company called Kuru. So they had a deep understanding of the problem and how they built it out uh, to, to build that passion. And we've seen it in the crypto space. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, there's a lot younger uh, individuals that are in the space. We're actually seeing more of the traditionals having a more challenging time of accepting to a certain degree. Uh, but those, I mean, if you are five years in the business of crypto, you're kind of a long time in the space. So we have seen some also in the younger uh, who are in that space. But then other than that, I mean, it's your kind of traditional stuff that you might look for in any other space. But I think that kind of gives you a range of stuff that we would um, look at in the fintech space. And um, Ranjit, what I mean, when you were launching Stack, how receptive are Canadian consumers to new products and services? I mean, we talked about the rebranding of, of open banking. Um, was it a struggle to convert customers? Um, I mean, also in, in the UK, you know, I think there was a statistic that people are with their bank longer than most marriages. So, you know, quite hard for the UK banks to get customers to, to fully switch. So yeah, what's the consumer appetite like? Yeah, it's a great question. And I would say, I was going to say most people probably still have the bank account that they had when they were 16 and maybe their parents told them to sign up or there's their parents' account. I think that's still the case. You know, I think Canada's probably 95, 98% banked uh, in that in that 
example where everyone has a bank account. But what we're seeing is, and like we saw in the UK, where some of the fintechs are are kind of the place where you put you know some of your extra money aside, or it's kind of shoebox accounting where you have your main account, you have your secondary account, third account. So that's you know as a as a company, consumer facing company launching, it is very challenging, right? So how do you how do you kind of grab someone's attention? You have limited budget, you have limited resources. Uh, you know you're facing banks that pay um, you know uh, 500 bucks to get a checking account, right? So we had to use some interesting tactics. We so the strategy was really to create a bank account that rewards you. Again, leveraging a payment rail, we had the benefit of uh, things like interchange that could drive revenue. And so we said, we'll create a bank account that just rewards you. And there wasn't really a debit account before that gave you rewards. And then um, we used like some tricks like from behavioral economics, right? So we learned pretty quickly um, and we asked customers this. And, you know, the the, the the fun thing was we got really engaged with uh, a lot of universities and campuses and, and really got to understand our customer really well. Um, but an example I could give you is like, um, if you gave a customer, you know, 100 $50 or $200 sign up for a checking account. They might be interested. They might do it for the money. Or if you said, um, you know, we'll give you Netflix free for a year, they would jump on it or Spotify. And the yeah. funny thing is, or Amazon Prime. And the funny thing is that that like from an accounting perspective actually costs from a financial perspective, actually costs less. Like okay. to give you Netflix for a year actually costs less than giving someone $200 or $300 for a checking account. But the customer values that more. The perceived value is higher. So you got to like think a bit creatively. You got to use, uh, you know, behavioral economics and things like that. Obviously with the Netflix, it's even, it's it's a more of an advantage because you have a customer for a year. As long as you pay the account, you get the rebate. And so you get an engaged customer for a year versus, you know, banks are throwing out like two, $300 are giving iPads and stuff. So um, we're able to carve a niche out using tactics like that, obviously leveraging social uh, heavily using campus ambassadors. We had an ambassador program. So a lot of growth, kind of tactics had to kind of come into the fold. We couldn't rely on the traditional media, traditional way to acquire a customer, right? We didn't have the budget of $100, $200 uh, uh, cost of acquisition per customer like the banks do, or, or probably even higher if you include all their media, right? So yeah, just thinking differently and uh, and being able to, to operate in that manner uh, helped us kind of grow. Okay, super. Jan, anything to add on that on, on consumer appetite for fintechs in Canada? Uh, it's a great question. I think it's increasing. I think it, we're, we're being more aware of what is available and what we can use. And I think, I mean, even thinking back a couple of years ago, I don't even think we were aware that we were using financial fintech related products, right? So even what is the, the things that are available? Of course, there was a lack of a, ways to, to of, of services available to potentially use. I uh, really like the points that uh, was brought up by Ranjit about like getting creative with the solutions, but it's just, it's really about speaking better to the profile of who you're trying to serve in this case. And we've seen it. Um, it's, it's, it's easier said than done, right? It's not, you know, it's not just a marketing, like there's engineered marketing. There's, as you mentioned, like behavioral side, like what incentivizes a user to do it and, and really understand the community that you're serving. Uh, we're seeing a full wave of that. And these are niche areas, so to speak. And I, I'm, I'm leaning on niche because they're not that niche in some cases. These are big demographic groups. And I'll, you know, flip back again to the idea of Manzel. Uh, and it was really understanding uh, how to reach out to that demographic group, make the product that actually is properly Sharia compliant, not not partially, and being able to uh, engage them in a manner in the channels for which they they, they want to be engaged, have the right spokespeople who who represent the products themselves, uh, be a part of that and how they built it out. And so we we see that in in, in various ways of any time we're, we're we're talking consumer, it's it's truly understanding the channels where they want to hang out and providing them the content that they want to to see at the right time. Um, and I mean, how is the how is the relationship between Canada fintechs and U.S. customers or U.S. fintechs and Canadian customers? Um, I know there's uh, one challenger bank, I think it's called North One. Um, so they're based in Canada servicing uh, U.S. customers. H how does that whole kind of dynamic play out? Yeah, I could, I could start there because we, I mean, we're based in Canada and we're working on Canadian and U.S. products. I think I think a part of it is just uh, the talent, right? So I think any company now, especially with with um, with with COVID, and we're kind of shifting to a hybrid and remote. There's a huge race for talent, 
And I think what's uh, what's being recognized, and you see it popping up all over um, uh, Toronto, Waterloo, Kitchener, these areas, and I'm sure in Montreal as well, you're getting the big tech giants setting up shop and hiring tons of engineers. Um, so fintech isn't immune to that and financial services. So yeah, I think what you're seeing is um, it happening both ways. There's companies based in the US that are basically hiring talent. And it used to be, you know, Canada was a region and it was like a sales market and you'd have, you know, a couple of salespeople and yeah. you sell products, but now it's like, uh, like core development, engineering, product management, product strategies happening from Canada. Um, that's definitely the case for, for Credit Sesame. We have a team of over hundred people in Toronto. And again, we work on Canadian and U.S. product and strategy. My, my team is across Canada and the U.S. on the product side. Um, and then you have companies like you mentioned, North One and others that basically are started in Toronto, um, but basically are looking at the U.S. market as a huge opportunity and going straight to launch products and services there. So I think, you know, you're seeing both things happen. Um, you know, being in the U.S. market, it's not uh, the grass isn't always greener in the sense of it is a bigger market, but there's also a lot more competition. And so we had the benefit of, of having a brand like Credit Sesame. It's been around for almost 10 years, 10 million plus customers. It's, it's a known entity. Um, it's difficult, you know, if you're, if you're an unknown entity uh, to try to launch in the U.S. Yes, the market's larger, but, you know, you're faced with tons of competition. There's, there's, there's 10x number of fintechs there for sure. Um, so just be cautious of that, but yeah, I think you're going to continue seeing this trend happening just because the talent is, is here, you know, there's, there's a huge concentration of talent in, in Canada. Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of the points. I can only maybe provide a little bit more context. So we've seen it from our, when we're targeting the, the internationally for the best companies that are fit with our market, we still get a big proportion of make investments into the U.S. as we're trying to establish them, certainly on the Canadian front as well. And access to talent was a great piece to it. You know, anything, especially data science related, and we have strong talent on the Canadian front, but affordability is fantastic, right? Like 20, you know, already a 20% discount right now, just in terms of the exchange rate. And then you throw in a lot of things like Shred, which is some of the bigger ones or other grants, you could be getting another 50, uh, 50% off. So we're talking up to 80% if you're actually headquartered and established here. So uh, what we've seen is in, from experience, I remember going into some of these way back in the day, other, other investments, uh, getting other investors for other startups I was working with and being like, wow, your, your, your team is like three times larger than we would have expected. Like, how is this even feasible? And there's lots of ways where the affordability just goes, the dollars just go substantially further. And so, and it's not that the talent is three times worse, right? It's just that you can afford a lot more in this particular case. The other side, I mean, every Canadian company for the most part, uh, not every, sorry, I'm overgeneralizing, but uh, more often than not is looking at ways of entering the U.S. market. And there are other markets outside the U.S. And you think others, need, we do need to start opening that up to figure out what is the best. It's not always necessarily the U.S. market, but it's naturally, it's going to be 10 times bigger. So, and, and I think uh, you touched some good points on it, but I think we've also realized in the last little bit that we can build unicorns in Canada. Five years ago, we were asking, you know, are the unicorns coming and here we are, right? We we've now seen that they've they've all kind of blossomed at the same time. For us in the space, we just figured it was a matter of time. Maybe uh, biasedly, um, biased. Well, we are optimistically biased that it was going to happen, um, and it did, right? It all kind of came. I do want to talk about the the North One situation, though. So these were as a company that was backed by the the first capital partners or one of the players that I'd mentioned previously as the capital went into it to like the foundry model. Um, they started actually in the in the Montreal ecosystem. Them, but the challenge was finding a, a banking provider to, to support them in, in what they were trying to do, shifted to the Toronto side of things, uh, and still struggled to actually launch in the Canadian market. So this is a story of them having to go to the U.S. Uh, because of the inability for them to get launched in the Canadian one. So that was an unfortunate story for Canada because we still have a huge gap in serving small businesses right now. And so this is something where the jurisdiction, uh, or sorry, the regulatory environments of our areas have caused it challenging to be able to whip, whip together, you know, uh, let's call it, I guess, a challenger bank that would serve um, you know, uh, corporate small businesses in this case, but kudos to them to continuing to persevere like any great uh, founders and entrepreneurs do finding that path to be able to do so and, and staying here in Canada as they're still true to their, to their roots and wanting to continue to build here to serve other markets. Yeah. So then I guess the question is, do you think, is it, um, is there also a lack of maybe bank as a service providers in Canada that are, yeah. 
Yeah, because I mean, you know, in, in, in Germany in particular, where I'm based, you know, we have basically Solaris Bank, which powers like every single niche bank and um, mobile only bank here in Germany. Also, yeah, providing some, you know, embedded finance solutions for some other companies. Is, is that kind of a challenge you see with with Canada? Yeah, I would I would say there's probably like two, there's probably one big, one large bank that services most fintechs and then probably another one, one or two. So it's probably two in total. Okay. The large banks will not service uh, fintech. So mm-hmm. versus the US, there's there's hundreds or thousands of community banks that, that would do this. And yeah. there's actually regulation that allows them to operate at a lower cost of capital. That makes it beneficial to actually, if you're a large fintech, to go with a smaller bank. That's why you don't see large fintechs in the US backed by large banks. Um, you know, I think I think that is definitely an issue. Um, I would recommend any bank that's listening in Canada to get into that business. It's pretty profitable. Uh, you could power tons of fintechs and, and create it. I mean, what we've done on our side as Stack is we do offer kind of this bank as a service. That's our white label product because not only do you need the bank license, but you need all the uh, ancillary services, the money movement and all those things around KYC and so what the bank license provides is just a regulatory checkbox to say, okay, you are now able to operate in the country using our license. And at the end, they are accountable uh, from a regulatory perspective, but all the kind of value add technology layer that's created is created by the fintechs. And so we package that as a service. We call it banking or fintech as a service. And that's the white label that we're doing. But at the end of the day, the buck stops with the license. And to your point, um, there's probably like two or two or three, maybe in Canada, you can you can go talk to, right? Which is a limited set. Okay. And I guess I mean on, on that note, what's the where do you see the ecosystem going? I guess if we were to reconvene three years from now, what would be kind of the maybe the biggest surprise? And um, yeah, how how would the ecosystem uh, be different? I, maybe I can go first. I mean, anyone who's making predictions, though, of course, is uh, bound to to not come true. But I like to also voice it because in this case, hopefully we'll pay more attention to it. I do think uh, on the Canadian front, we, we need to uh, continue to be a little bit more bold, a little bit more aggressive in the way that in, in a lot of different ways. So I think from the regulation side of things, we're, we're sort of dragging our feet on a bunch of different areas and, and we need to really flip it and it start moving to implementation i think we're you know the ecosystem is is really asking for it pretty pretty loudly at this point i think a lot of indicators illustrate that we should be there i think we've been torn between kind of two worlds for a long time saying well our american counterparts have a naturally competitive ecosystem uh, but we don't, though. I'm a big believer. I'm a big believer of competitive markets, but in the invisible hand. But I'm also a believer that sometimes that needs a little push in the right direction to ensure that we do have a competitive marketplace. And and, and if we look on the European front, they've done a fantastic job of being able to to you know get ahead of that through through a bunch of different initiatives. Um, so you know, I think open banking obviously is one for which we've been um, a little slow and getting further behind. And was hoping that um, through all these conversations, we would have a, a more for, firm stance of, of the timeline to implementation, but we certainly still haven't gotten there. Um, central bank digital currencies. There's been some things in the background sort of moving, but, you know, I'm just hesitant at this point to say, like, when's it going to come? Because this isn't something that's been studied for over 10 years. It's called Project Jasper and been very impressed with, you know, us taking a leadership position there. Uh, so much so, I can tell you, like others have looked towards us, the world, and other central banks have come in and we just pass this information over. So this is, you know, you know Canadian tax dollars funding other others as well, which is also great for, for building relationships. So don't get me going wrong, but I just sometimes I think, react too much as a fast follower to de-risk things and if you're a fast follower in many cases especially in government you're a follower and 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 at what point are we moving too slow and that is a risk i think where our risk averseness sometimes can actually be a big risk and we need to start looking a little bit more at risk taking the world is changing and therefore we have to change and so we need to uh, take a better bit bolder stance and confidence in going into that space yeah, I would say the the future really depends on uh, how things progress on the regulatory front. I'd, I would add another piece is also the access to capital, venture capital in Canada. So I know there's. So I would I would define it as there's probably a healthy 
kind of seed early, you know, the accelerators like, like Jan and others, I think there's a healthy ecosystem around early stage funding to get you to seed. But once you get to like series A, and again, this, the definitions keep changing, you know, I've seen $5 million seeds, but once you're in like the 10, 15, $20 million series A, there's, there's a gap in Canada to get that type of funding. And then, so there's a bit of a hole there, but then at the end, like the scale-ups, there's, there's actually quite a bit of money in scale-ups and you saw, you know, like well, simple raised 700 million and there's, there's Georgian partners. There's like a lot of big scale-ups that could come in, but it's like that in between. So you, you and, and we're, we're fortunate enough now that we're, we're part of, you know, credit Sesame is a scale-up, but looking back at my stack days, it was difficult. And I think it's still the case. You could raise a seed round. You could be part of an accelerator. You could get friends and family and angels. But then when you need to get that 10, 15, $20 million check, it's very difficult in Canada. And that's why I think a lot of companies end up expanding markets to either uh, the US. I mean, Latin America is a huge market as well that's untapped in fintech. But uh, it's a lack of venture capital at that stage, which means that we're going to see a lot more of the bigger scale-up rounds. So the, the well simples and then maybe uh, acquisition and consolidation. But um, if I had a magic wand and you know I could help the ecosystem here, I'd, I'd, I'd try to get more funding in at that earlier Series A, Series B stage, just so we could have a lot more scale ups down the road. Because that's gonna, you know, that we're gonna we're gonna dry up in in five or five years or so if we don't get that funding basically early on, right? I would I would like just to add to Ranjit's point. I- Pretty much, I agree with everything he said to date. But I would say that the seed side, I do think there is not enough capital there. Uh, we've seen it, and just because we've supported a lot of early stage companies, and we find ourselves more often than not kind of by ourselves, really pushing and spending a lot more time than we think is necessary to fund these. We in Canada, again, risk averseness over risk taking. It's a cultural thing and it's across the board. So, you know, I picked on the regulatory side, on the capital side, it's still the same thing. I think the way we, we expect kind of unit economic numbers at a seed stage in which, you know, that's series A sort of play. We're asking them to look and be profitable and all these things and at a seed stage investment. And in the U.S., I mean, seed seeds is, you know, we're expecting one to three to five million in some cases and those are proper seed stages so how are we financing this to give them the proper chance and it's not just at necessarily like where are the lps then to fund the funds to then invest into those companies we have kind of a lack of a competitive lp base here right now uh and it needs a little support it just has to do like if you were to raise a fund right now i can tell you through experience a lot of the lps that are there have already deployed capital and numerous funds at this point and we're kind of like well do we need more and like we do we do need more capital into the space right now uh canada has always been for a long time the initial way it got started was government intervention into the bc landscape uh and i think we're going to need more of it to continue to build a competitive space we have seen it on the different provinces uh create more of this and we've seen it in, in the the federal government's also looking at this as well some of the challenges, though, of course, when you're building these funds, though, I mean, they come with uh, government restrictions, which makes it very challenging uh, because in some cases, they're, they're, the rules of what they require to how to establish impede the profitability of the fund or the strategy of that fund manager. And so we're kind of hurting right now emerging managers. Uh, and if you were to look actually across the board, especially in the U.S., if ever in the last 15 years, 50% of the time, it's emerging managers that are in the top you know, 10, 15 of performance. And we just don't embrace the term emerging managers here in Canada. I think we are looking for people with any track record, good or bad, to just keep reinvesting into those versus like trying to foster new players to come in. So things to solve, uh, we're kind of trending slowly in the right direction. We've come a long way. So I don't want to say that it's not. And I know it's the, it's the best time more than ever to to be a startup, but there's still a lot of room and, and, and hope that by sending this message that we're going to get more uh, LPs uh, to participate and more funding into much needed startups. Yeah, just to add, like, and I agree with you, and I think it needs closer to the seed area. But yeah, when I was thinking back a couple of years ago when we were fundraising at Stack, it was like, it was so different. You go to the, you go to the U.S. funds, it's like, you go to the Canadian funds, it's like you're being too bold and aggressive, pair back your estimates. You go to the U.S. funds with the same deck and it's like, you're not aggressive enough. And it's like, okay, so that, that, that was like a perfect example of the conservatism in Canada. But I, I think it's still there, like Yan would be closer to it. I think it's getting better, but there's still a gap. And I, I guess it extends down to the seed. And I, I especially with fintech, we're not going to be profitable early on. You look at some of the bigger, biggest challenger banks like Chime and others, 
they're not profitable till very, very late stage. And so asking a, uh, at a seed stage, even series A stage to have that type of financial metrics um, for a FinTech challenger is very difficult, right? It almost kind of stunts your um, ability to grow. Okay, so I think we know what the, the secret sauce is to a more successful uh, FinTech ecosystem in five years. So being a bit bolder, um, you know, greater access to capital across all stages, um, some support from the regulator. But nevertheless, I mean, you know, it seems that, you know, there's there's been a lot happening in the past five years. Um, seems that it's, you know, everything's kind of on the way forward, thinking about, you know, what Canada's done with the um, CBDC research, also, um, you know, looking further into open banking, um, and again, being creative and being able to access lots of different markets. So, yeah, super interesting to dive a bit more into what's happening in Canada. Um, so, yeah, Jan and Ranjit, I'd like to thank you both so much for joining us today. Um, Ranjit, where can our listeners find out more about you and about Credit Sesame? Um, yeah, so we are uh, in Canada. It's uh, it's getstack.ca. We still operate a stack and you can download the stack app. I encourage everyone in Canada to get a stack app and get their no-fee banking and rewards at the same time. And if uh, U.S. listeners are are there, it's uh, creditsesame.com and Sesame Cash uh, and Credit Sesame is there to help build your score. And we're kind of the only bank in the U.S. that helps grow your credit score. So um, encourage everyone to check out the site. Super. Thanks, Manja. And, and Jan? Yeah, feel free to uh, check out uh, holtexchange.com. Uh, it's just uh, x and then change.com. And with that, uh, we, you know, we're always looking for new advisors to join our community because we believe it takes a village to raise a startup. So if you're a financial institution, investor, or someone who has an expertise but uh, care about the early stage fintech, you know, the next wave of it, this this next technology, this infrastructure that we're, we're building collectively and want to have a say in the direction it goes, I encourage you to reach out so that you can enjoy, uh, join our advisor army, as we like to call it. And of course, to all the startups, uh, always happy to have calls no matter what, try to figure out, provide advice, guidance, anything we can through this process. And of course, yeah, through time, see if there's a fit uh, for us to make an investment, our investment period. We're knee deep in applications now, and, and, and every year we try to make about eight or so. So really looking for the best companies pre-Series A uh, that we can support generally that are in North America or looking to enter the North American market. Great. Jan and Ranjit, thank you so very much again. And thank you to our listeners. That was Breaking Banks Europe, episode 82, Journeys from the FinTech World, focusing on Canada. Thanks for listening to Breaking Banks Europe, a Provoke Media podcast in cooperation with Fintech Stage. Don't forget to tweet us out, shout out, or post to the team at Breaking Banks EU on Twitter. If there's something or someone you'd like to hear on our cast, let us know. See you next week on Breaking Banks Europe.